John Calvin, he famously begins his Institutes of the Christian Religion by saying this. This is the opening sentence. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He goes on to say it's sometimes hard to tell which one begets and brings forth the other. His point is that we can't know God except as human persons who, in some measure, know ourselves. His more basic point is we can't know ourselves unless we know God. Accordingly, he says, knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to God to seek him, but also leads us by the hand to him. It's a very famous opening paragraph. The self is known only in the light of God, for God is the very context for the existence of human selves. And these are sentiments which the psalmist in our text, from Psalm 139, I think the psalmist would heartily affirm these sentiments. Although I think he'd probably put it a bit more like this. He would say, we know ourselves only as those already known by God. We know ourselves only as those who are already known by God. So we're going to make four points here. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. Omniscience, omnipresence, creation and judgment. First, omniscience. Omniscience means all-knowing. Theologians and non-theologians alike talk of omniscience as one of God's attributes. But this is not, this psalm's not a theological treatise. It's not really concerned, in spite of all the knowing language, it's not really concerned with God's knowledge in the abstract. Part of the power of this psalm, the reason it's so beloved, is that it's intimate and it's personal. Sure, the psalm is about the divine knowledge, but only as the divine knowledge is bound up with the psalmist and with the psalmist's plight. You can see in the text, verse 1 begins, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. This uh, practical, pastoral edge of omniscience. It is I that am known. It is you that are known. It is the psalmist who is known. I and me and my dominate the poem. So that omniscience is not left hanging up here in the air. It's omniscience concerning us. Concerning you, the people of God, which is in view in this text. And we should take note at the outset as well that this divine knowing of you, of us, is not a mere assembly of facts. Even a complete assembly of facts. Divine knowledge here means divine scrutiny. Even divine judgment 
And here I use the word judgment in the sense of sifting or evaluating. This is active personal knowledge. God is intimately, actively involved with you, with us, with the psalmist. Notice the, the uh, action words, the closeness sort of words in the first five verses. Here's a few of them. Searched, known, perceive, discern, familiar, hem in. God's knowledge of us is vivid. It's concrete. It's detailed. It's committed and involved knowledge. God doesn't know you sort of like, you know, an art expert examining a sculpture. This is deeply personal, committed knowledge, complete and exhaustive. When you sit down, verse 2 says, when you rise. Verse 3, when you go out, when you lie down, whether you're resting or acting, waking or sleeping, God knows our actions. He's familiar with our ways, our thoughts before we think them, our words before they're on our tongues. The totality then of our thoughts and our speech and and the inner reasons from which they spring, they're open to God, they're visible before we think or speak. And so verse 5 summarizes this, the Lord hems us in behind and before, in space and in time. In the past, into the future, he lays his hand. His hand here is his knowledge in action. He lays his hand upon us. This is something no human creature can escape. We're inescapably, totally enclosed in this reality, this living knowledge. In him we live, we move, we have our being. Or in terms of this text, in him our thoughts and our words and our actions are exhaustively known and exhaustively known at every point. This is omniscience made acutely personal. It's omniscience up in your stuff. It is in the words of verse 6, A knowledge too wonderful, the psalmist says. It's too lofty, I can't attain it. It eludes our grasp or our control. In in saying the few things I've just said here, in knowing it, we know that it exceeds us. This is always the case, always the case, with the infinite God and finite creatures. In knowing, we, what we, we know that what we know exceeds our knowing. We can apprehend God to some extent. We can apprehend, we can never fully comprehend. We're just, we're just tugging at the hem of his garment a little bit. So the second point is omnipresence. Now, this sort of being known can be unnerving. Hopefully you sensed a little bit of that as we described it. Especially for Americans. And it's set forth in the psalm largely as a positive thing. But it's natural that we might have an urge to escape it. And you get a little glimpse of that starting in verse 7. 
The, the, the famous poem by Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven. It's about our fleeing away from God and running away and he pursues us and we run and he pursues. It draws from the second stanza of this text. Where can I go from your spirit? So here he shifted from the fact that God is omniscient, he knows everything, to the fact that God's omnipresent. He's fully present everywhere by his spirit. Where can I flee from your presence? Now, it's not clear here that the psalmist wants to flee, but he's at least asking rhetorically about the possibility of fleeing. And he explores, you can see this in verse 8, four directions, up, down, east, and west. There's nowhere to go, he says, without finding that God's already there. This is not because God is spread out in space. It's because God is fully God everywhere. God is completely present back there. He's completely present right here. So the psalmist can't find a place. The wings of the dawn, the the heights of the heavens. I can go to to the east where the sun rises. I can go to the far side of the sea, the Mediterranean, which is on the west side of Israel. It doesn't matter. I can't escape. And in verse 10, it becomes clear that the psalmist is not fundamentally threatened. He says, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There's a confidence he expresses in this. I remember the writer, the the famous uh, atheist writer, uh, Christopher Hitchens, saying that he found the idea of an all-knowing all-seeing God, repugnant. A bit like living in North Korea, he said. Who wants to live under some totalitarian regime where some being in the sky is counting every thought you have? And that's understandable. For, for how we react to this text will depend on the state of our hearts. Jean-Paul Sartre, another atheist, famously said, hell is other people. And if the other person is this God and you hate him, that would be hell indeed. But for the psalmist, God's presence here means his powerful hand is guiding and holding him fast. For those in covenant with this Lord, omniscience and omnipresent being, omniscience, omnipresence, Being thoroughly known, thoroughly seen, that means being fully loved and fully embraced. That's what that means for the people of God. Yet I do think it's natural that the text unnerves us some because we're not yet in glory. There are unconquered parts of our soul and those parts hate God. Luther has this famous saying that only Luther in his brutal honesty would actually utter out loud. Presbyterians think this kind of stuff, but we never say it. Luther was asked about loving God, and he said, love God? Sometimes I hate him. Sometimes I hate him. So, but we should be a people who are moving to embrace the inescapable knower 
and seer because he's good, because he is love, because he's already embraced us. We can't separate God's exhaustive knowledge for you from God's exhaustive love for you. God is a simple being. He doesn't have parts. If he knows you in covenant with him, that means he loves you. So verse 11 and 12 say that even the darkness can't hide us. The darkness will be as light to the one who separates the day from the night. This is an allusion to Genesis 1. And it leads to my third point here, which is creation. Now here, the psalmist, now here it gets, if if anything, even more intimate and more personal. And his thought seems to run like this, that God's omniscience, his omnipresence with respect to us, go back to the very beginning of our existence. But he's tracing it back and he has to go back. And he says, of course he knows us. Of course he's fully present with you. For as verse 13 says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God didn't just create the first man and then then leave things to impersonal biological forces. He remains the creator of every human being. So his knowledge of you, it's personal. His presence to you is personal. But his work in fashioning you, in forming you, in sustaining you, that is personal. Here it says he knit us together. And he does so with unfathomable skill. Look at verse 14. It's the only note, the only direct voicing of praise in the text. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. His knowledge was wonderful earlier. Now it's his creative skill which is wonderful. The psalmist goes on and says, My frame, meaning the frame of my physical being, was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. The secret place here, the depths of the earth, refer to God's secret workshop in the womb of his mother. The darkness, the psalmist said earlier, doesn't hide us from God, and neither does the darkness of the womb. It's God's own workshop where he knits. It's a place of his conspicuous care, of his sovereign attentiveness, the womb is. You may be hidden from all others there, but not from the all-knowing, all-seeing creator. This text says he's there As a master craftsman, he's weaving, or the word is embroidering our frame. He's working or seeing or viewing our unformed substance. Abortion is tragic precisely because it invades this sanctuary. This is the theater of God's handiwork. And the church has always, while she holds out the free promise of mercy and full forgiveness, while there is no sin which the blood of Christ cannot cover and which can separate you from God if you repent, the church has always upheld the sanctity and dignity of every human being precisely because of texts like this. If you're interested in the history of this, you can get a wonderful book by Michael Gorman called Abortion in the Early Church. 
This is not a, a purely contemporary issue. It's an issue that goes back to David's own ex- explanation of what God was doing in his mother's womb. Note, notice the text says that his frame, the one being knit and woven together, the unformed substance here is David, the king. You knit me. I was woven together. My unformed substance. So this is not an impersonal entity in the womb that later becomes David. This is David at the beginning of his days. And God, the creator, the one who who sees in the darkness of the womb, sees and ordains our days, the text says. His knowing of us is rooted in his eternal foreknowledge. And these thoughts, David says, are They're not just wonderful, but they're precious, he says in verse 17. The saints are precious to God, and God is precious to the saints. Think about what this psalm is. It's David thinking about God's thoughts about him. Do you ever do that? You ever think about God thinking about you? It's a good thing to do. And and when he thinks on this, he finds these thoughts innumerable. Like there's no way to stop. They're too vast and wonderful. He says, when I awake, either from sleep or ultimately from death, he says, I'm still with God. He's ever with us. And that brings us to the fourth point, the judgment. And this comes as quite a shock. Hearing it, though, is going to help us get this psalm right. Verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak with evil intent. They misuse your name. You know what? These verses are often skipped when this psalm is read publicly. No surprise there, but it happens. They jar us, these verses. What are these verses doing here? Well, one thing they do is they teach us that David is not simply engaged in a heartwarming meditation about God's nearness to us. He is in the midst, it turns out, of wicked, bloodthirsty, murderous men who hate God and who apparently threaten David as well. And when you leave verses like this out of Psalm 139, the whole psalm gets skewed. This, in fact, forces us to reconceive what was going on to this point in the text. I mean, the text moves from a sort of charming motherly lullaby in the nursery, right, out into the battlefield in one verse. The logic I propose is something like this. David is saying, oh God, you know me intimately. Your presence embraces me. You're sovereign, all-seeing, all-knowing. Even from the womb, you knit me. And this is my comfort in the midst of these bloodthirsty and murderous enemies. This is not simply an uplifting meditation in the abstract. Furthermore, David says, since your knowledge and your presence are living and they're active, since they penetrate down to the secret hearts, the secrets of our hearts, the thoughts, the intents. 
Since you scrutinize, Lord, and since you evaluate and search and sift and judge, you must arise and remove the wicked from the earth. The anomaly of their presence is finally intolerable. It turns out for David, you can't just have an abstract meditation on omniscience and omnipresence. The all-knowing, all-seeing character of the Creator must produce this cry for justice. After all, God is not seeing a bunch of charming Norman Rockwell scenes. He's seeing the whole mangled human spectacle. And so it turns out that to meditate on an attribute of God is, there should be no surprise here, to yearn for eschatological glory. God is all-knowing, therefore, he must remove the wicked and renew the earth. Because no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked, the book of Hebrews says, and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so this stanza, again, usually skipped, enables us to see that there is indeed something threatening, something unnerving about an omniscient and an omnipresent God. So God is sifting, David says. He's evaluating. And what David is doing here is he's taking his stand against the enemies of God. He says, your enemies are my enemies. And this perfect hatred is compatible with, indeed it's a part of, true virtue. If you love something, you're going to hate what destroys that thing. And you should. If you don't, something's wrong. He doesn't hate them out of personal malice or for their own sakes. He hates them because they're bloodthirsty haters of God. And so history forces us to choose sides. It turns out that the omniscience of God forces you to choose sides. Because the all-knowing one acts and sifts and judges. And David is simply making his choice public here. But please get this. He knows that evil can reside in his own breast. He knows that we can pronounce judgment unrighteously. He knows we can evaluate wrongly. That we can compromise with evil ourselves. That we can be evil people. And so we get this turn back in on himself in these well-known closing verses. Verse Search verse toward the end of toward the end of the psalm. There, search me, O God, and know my heart. It's very important to see this. Yes, David did say, "Arise, O Lord, away with these bloodthirsty men." But then he he realizes judgment begins at the house of God. Judgment begins with me. So the first person I want you to search is me. Back in verse 1 it was, you have searched me and known me. Here he takes that truth and he personalizes it even further. He invites the sifting, searching God into his heart. See, it's not, not quite enough for us to affirm that God's omniscient, that he knows you and that he sees everything. You have to invite him. You have to ask for that God to come and search. In other words, David is consenting, if you will, to have God invade his privacy. He gives up his Fourth Amendment rights. 
He wants God to use his omniscience for David's sanctification. He wants the scrutiny to lead to sanctity. So he says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Notice that. I thought this was a serenity psalm. But there's, David's a man with troubled, turbulent thoughts. He's seeking to have them calmed. They're anxious. He wants them relieved. And he says, see if there's any offensive way in me. This is a very important spiritual discipline for us. Inviting God into the inner recesses of our being for a good, hard look around. An inventory. This is why the confession of sins is at the front end of every service. But it should be basic to Christian existence. And we do this so that all that's offensive in us might be confronted and judged. So that we might, as the text continues, be led in the way everlasting. Because that everlasting way ends with us who know in part knowing fully, even as we are fully known and loved. You are fully known and loved, but you only know in part. You need to have the offensive stuff removed so you can know more fully, love more fully. And we do this with confidence. There's a reason this search me is at the end of the psalm. There's a number of reasons, but the one who's searching us is the one who created us, the one whose hand guides us. The one who holds us fast in everlasting love. There's no terror in this. Let God search you. Let him know you. Let him try you. Let him test you. Let him him have a, a good look at your anxieties. Let him find the stuff that's offensive. And let him get it out of there. Because that's where, upon that, our human flourishing, our knowing, and our loving depend. And so what we have in this psalm is really an echo, an expanded echo of the opening prayer today. If you can see it in your bulletin, if you go back to the opening prayer, that, that opening prayer was actually composed by the English reformer, Thomas Cranmer, in the 16th century. It's the prayer of the day. Um, and it's known as a, as a collect for purity. Collect. Spelled the same way you spell the word collect, C-O-L-L-E-C-T. But it's, it's, it's pronounced collect. It means a short prayer. And this is known as, as the collect for purity. The psalm is essentially magnifying this. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are known, are open. All desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Go, think, pray, likewise. Amen.